Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Making for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast and um, spending the time to speak on your article um, that you wrote. Uh, I think it was back in November of 2021. And it was, you know, some young adults with disabilities are stuck in long-term care. And so um, before we start, um, can we get you just to tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, thanks so much for having me. I am a freelance journalist, uh, mainly for print publications, but I do some broadcast work as well. So I've been freelancing for about six, seven years since about 2014. And then I'm also a student at the Master's of Journalism program at Carleton University in Ottawa. So I I moved to Ottawa in September, uh, but I I grew up in southwestern Ontario, um, and then I was living in Toronto for a few years before moving to Ottawa. But yeah, I've I've worked as a journalist throughout Canada in in Whitehorse, Yukon, and then in St. John, New Brunswick. So had a seen many different parts of the country. Yes, (laughs) that's great. That's great. And so... Before, what we'll start is that, you know, your article talked of it on a topic that isn't part of the normal conversation. And so what prompted you to write uh, about these particular individuals during COVID-19? Sure. Uh, So I have been doing some work since 2016 for an organization called Accessible Media Inc., AMI, which is a national not-for-profit media company that focuses on disability stories. And in the end of 2019, they approached me about doing a regular segment on their morning show covering disability issues throughout the country. And the, the original idea was because the Accessible Canada Act was passed in the summer of 2019, we wanted to continue the momentum around that and to talk about how implementation of that was going to go. So um, my last trip before the pandemic, I went out to Whitehorse in October, 2019 uh, to visit some friends of mine who still live there. I I lived there several years ago. And I uh, met with a uh, local executive director of a disability organization because I was just trying to get ideas for different stories that we could cover in this AMI segment. She told me this story about a young woman who uh, was living in a long-term care facility in Whitehorse because for a variety of reasons her parents were unable to make their home wheelchair accessible. Okay. And that was the first story I had heard about this. That wasn't somebody that I knew. You know, like growing up there, uh, there was a woman who attended the church um, that I grew up uh, attending who um, a number of years ago had to move into a long-term care facility and was like, probably maybe like in her 30s, um, not entirely sure, but they definitely not a senior. So I, I knew some people in my own life who were, were in this experience and then this woman told me this story. So I kept that, filed that in the back of my head and then when COVID started and it became very clear that long-term care uh, was being hit uh, more. There's a lot of tension about this early in 2020. I just kept yes. kind of waiting, you know, for somebody to do the mm-hmm. article about young adults with disabilities who live in long-term care. And I guess I kind of figured pretty quickly that that was not going to happen, that nobody was going to be reporting on this. And it was 
would have been April 2020 that I started mm-hmm. reaching out to people doing a lot of the interviews. So for example, Victoria Levac, who is uh, featured at the beginning and the end of this article, I first spoke to her in April 2020. Okay. Um, and spent a good portion of 2020 just speaking to different people, trying to formulate enough of for a pitch letter, I wanted to show a magazine. I've spoken to people across the country about this issue. This is a national problem that we need to be discussing. And then, uh, yeah, shopped it around and I was fortunate enough to have Broadview Magazine pick it up and it was published in their December, 2021 issue. Yeah, thank you for that. And yeah, it definitely is, uh, I would say a national issue that isn't discussed. Um, much, which is not, um, it doesn't say, it doesn't reflect very well as us as a society that um, we don't remember these people, right? And then in addition to that, prior to COVID-19, you know, individuals with intellectual or developmental or physical disabilities that lived in long-term care didn't have the support to ensure that they were still part of the greater community, mm-hmm. right? And now that they're in long-term care, staff are aren't aware how to navigate and how to ensure inclusion. And most times um, the connection would be to, to family or to advocates uh, for persons or, or themselves. What have you uh, uncovered about this? In terms of the connections that people have to the community? Yeah, exactly. Sure. Um, it's been strained to say the least during the pandemic. Uh, so the concerns about visitor restrictions, um, which have been felt, I think, by anyone who either works in a long-term care facility or has friends or family there, or group homes as well. There's been a lot of discussion about visitor restrictions there. Um, One of the things that I found particularly interesting, and it is something to keep in mind with this age group for adults who are not seniors in long-term care, is many of them prior to the pandemic, would schedule their lives so that they had to spend as little amount of time as possible in the long-term care facility. That's right. Um, so they've got a lot of effort to do that. And you talk to some of them. So for example, go back to Victoria Levac, who features prominently in this in the piece I wrote. She had a very active social life prior to this pandemic. Um, and I've spoken to people who research this topic and they'll say that they'll often hear there's almost this language of I treat the facility as a hotel where I sleep and I maybe eat. The pandemic happens and all of that stops completely and is shut down. And then there's added considerations, for example, um, so I'm 33. If I was living in a long-term care facility, uh, my parents are in their mid 60s. But if my parents were older and they were the ones coming to visit me, right, it's now seniors who are the ones having to come to visit younger adults that could have more compounding vulnerabilities in terms of the coronavirus. Uh, So that's that's something that I think was a unique or still is a unique challenge faced by younger adults. Definitely. And what you described is totally totally on point um, because I know of many young younger folks uh, in long-term care that did exactly that they would hardly ever stay once they woke up they left and didn't come back until it was time to sleep um, type of thing so that has definitely restricted them so your article as well touches on the fact that there have been many reports 
you know, as an example, in on the province of Ontario, there was the 2017 report of Nowhere to Turn, and most recently, the Royal Society of Canada, which detailed a, 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 another report of the inequities faced by these individuals for their care, housing, and training for staff. Would you say that the pandemic has, on a whole, attempted or at least brought light to some of these outstanding deficiencies? Right. I would say for those who are looking for it, it has brought light to these issues. So in my general work as a freelancer, the past few years, I've done more work around disability policy, mainly because of my work with AMI. And then that's I've also um, pivoted that and, and done articles for other publications as a, as a result of those stories. So when I would talk to people, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, and ask like, what has changed in your life? What you heard from a lot of people, disability, disability organizations was nothing in my life has changed. My life was always like this. Now everyone else is just experiencing a bit of what I've been experiencing. So I think for people who are looking for it, mm-hmm. it's, it's brought light to it. Um, and I think, you know, like one of the reasons why I decided to pursue this story during the pandemic was because there was a pandemic and people were talking about long-term care. So I thought, okay, why don't we capitalize on this moment and expand the conversation? Um, But I think now we're like 21 months into 22 months into this, we don't know how long, however long we are into this pandemic. I, I would say any enthusiasm people had at the beginning has definitely waned or is not. Um, So Will there be change as a result of the pandemic? I would hope, but I'm not holding my breath. No, <laughs> I know. I, I definitely do agree what you just said in terms of, you know, at the very beginning, yes, there was a lot of uh, vigor and energy. Mm-hmm. But right now, it, 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 it seems to be waning uh, in terms of the, the interest and the fact that, you know, there's people that are, you know, their lives are at, uh, not necessarily at risk, but um, they don't have the, I guess, the value that they need to wake up every morning and to continue and to move onwards, right? So mm-hmm. it's just one of those challenges that still needs to be talked about. And, you know, I think in your article, you mentioned a bit about the home care. Now, would mm-hmm. you think that home care would need to be a more robust to properly support individuals to remain at home and in the community. And I know that your article mentioned about the individualized funding that can Mm -hmm. be purchased for services and for PSWs. Um, But, and each province is kind of different. You know, how would you say that this is kind of impacted? Has it remained the same in terms of the individualized funding for these individuals? Has the amount of individualized funding remained same during, during the pandemic? During the pandemic, yeah. Um, overall, I would say it has. I'm not an expert on this. I've done a bit of mm-hmm. reporting on uh, subject related individualized funding. So individualized funding is a government-funded program where individuals or families receive a certain amount of money uh, from the provincial or territorial government for... Um, activities related to home care or community participation and the family determines how those funds will be used and they are the ones who hire and train staff to uh, work with the individual um, who needs it. That's, it differs from a model where the government gives an agency the funding and then an agency is 
in charge of, di of disseminating the money and training stuff. So what it what individualized funding theoretically does is it gives individuals more control over who is caring for them and they, they, you become essentially a small business owner. Uh, you're in charge of facilitating this pot of money. It works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. Um, there can be challenges. I was doing reporting in the summer of 2020 about challenges in Ontario for people who receive something called family managed home care, which yeah. is for uh, children who are medically complex. Um, and just there's um, there's certain requirements about who can and cannot be a caregiver um, in terms of if they're related to or not. And there's just a whole lot of hurdles being put in place because of the pandemic, even the ability to you know go to a first aid certifying course. There are no first aid courses in 2020. So like, how do you do that? So there were, there have been a lot of logistical challenges for a lot of people accessing this, but on the same hand, I can at least speak for Ontario. There's also yeah. been some flexibility in terms of what different uh, funding programs can be used for. So for example, passport funding, which is a, a smaller version of individualized or direct funding in Ontario, which is given to adults with developmental disabilities to facilitate community engagement. So like non-medical things. Um, there's a list of items that you can purchase with your passport funding. That list was expanded at the beginning of the pandemic to take into account the fact that a lot of people's social activities had been canceled. Yeah. Um, so there's been a bit of flexibility, but definitely one of the main concerns that's been coming the past few months, you, you probably understand this yeah. um, better than most, is nurses. Uh, right. there's, a, there's a nursing shortage and people will leave long-term care, community care jobs to work in a hospital or long-term care setting because uh, the compensation is better there. I mean, I've spoken to families about that. Like nobody's mad at their nurse. Like, no. you know, they, like, we understand it. Like they have families, they need to pay their bills. We get why you want to go somewhere that's going to pay you more. But now there's parents who are acting as 24 seven nurses and are doing it and they're sleep deprived somebody's going to get hurt like somebody's life yeah. is at risk with that so i'd say right now probably the biggest concern has to do with do we have enough nurses to fill the need and home and community care yeah definitely and with what's going on especially here in the province of ontario um lots of nurses are leaving the field and mm -hmm. and as you mentioned families are definitely being stretched and pulled very very thin and um, the other things with the um, with this individual passport funding is the fact that, of course, it's um, you have to pay in order before you can get reimbursed. So that, again, mm -hmm. adds another layer of a financial burden to the family, in addition to the caregiving services that they're providing to mm -hmm. to their loved ones. Right. So and it's just for listeners who aren't who've mm -hmm. never used a system like this. The way it typically works is the government says you have X number of dollars this year. It's not like it's not like you can just go to them and say, like, hi, I need more money for this. Yeah. Like that doesn't happen. It's very much fixed. Um, you work with what you've been given, and people find very um ingenious ways to yes. make their dollars stretch as far as they can. But it's not like this is some unlimited fountain of government resources just pouring into your family. Um, that's yeah. that's not how it works. And, or if you look at a program that I'm more familiar with being legally blind is the assistive devices program, ADP. Um, with that, depending on what 
device you're looking for, you're only covered up to a certain percentage of the full cost. And then there's a whole other set of restrictions even on like what you can buy and where you can buy it from depending on what you need. So these programs, I even like speaking just from my own personal experience, it's mm-hmm. one of these things where like, you're grateful for it, but you also realize all the problems that are inherent in this system. Yeah. And you're just trying to make it work the best as it can for you. So you're grateful for what you've been given, but you would never say this is a perfect gift. It's wonderful. Definitely true. Definitely true. I definitely would agree. And, you know, again, in your article, you talked about, you know, you talked with a number of individuals across the country about their experience in long-term care. And there were a number of themes that came through, which was one was they are forgotten ones, or it's very isolating, or they felt discriminated against. Can you kind of take us through some of these themes of the of the individuals that you spoke with? Sure. I think we've already touched on mm-hmm. the being forgotten. I would say that's a very large one that just comes down to um and victoria levac again she said it probably uh probably most clearly when i spoke to essentially quote of something like you know when we talk about fixing long-term care we always talk about our elders everyone yeah. forgets that there's people like me in the system and she is hopefully going to be leaving uh the long-term care facility where she's been um hopefully going to be leaving there in the, in the next few weeks but she moved into a long-term care facility in her early 20s in Halifax yeah. uh, because her parents could not guarantee that home care nurses would show up on time and that she would get the support that she needs for um, cerebral palsy uh, at home. So definitely the idea of like, being forgotten in the general conversation about long-term care, but then also being forgotten in a long-term care facility itself. So one of the women that I spoke to several times, um, uh, her story um, uh, didn't make it into the final piece because of space, but she is mm-hmm. a fascinating person. Um, Heather Graham in Calgary, um, she has MS and she's lived in her current uh, long-term care facility for about eight years. And like, she'll talk about, you know, requ- like requesting changes to the menu, like, and want, want some different food and the response that she get from staff would be like oh you know most people who live here don't stay long enough to eat all the meals mm-hmm. um so we call them long-term care facilities but the reality is several individuals are there to spend the last their last days before they die so it is very rare that you would have somebody live in the same facility for years, if not even decades. Um, and then there's uh, perennial concerns about uh, programming. Yeah. You know, um, what if, what if, it's just shocking, what, what if like a 30-year-old doesn't want to play bingo with seniors as their only source of social engagement? Uh, things like that. And then also a concern about safety in terms of... Um, Everybody wants individuals who have dementia or Alzheimer's to receive the best care possible and for their lives to have as much comfort and joy as possible. Like everybody wants that. But then there, there is a valid question to be asked. Should somebody who does not have dementia and is younger, should they be on the same floor as an older dementia patient? Is that safe for everybody involved? And there's very real concerns about physical or sexual violence. Occurring. So that would definitely be the idea of like being forgotten, being isolated. Discrimination, um, that comes into more in terms of the 
social systems and the government supports or lack of supports that have led to people being placed into long-term care facilities against really against their will. So uh, the argument is that if you do not provide people with adequate resources, whether that be housing, whether that be social assistance, whether that be community supports, if you do not provide them with adequate resources to stay in their home, then they are forced into long-term care. They they did make that choice. And actually the, the print, the headline that this article was published under, under the print magazine is that I didn't have a choice. So the discrimination arg- argument comes from an exploration of what social assistance um, and supports are available by the government, what are not being available, and what are the larger societal factors and po- political factors that are leading people to live in long-term care facilities well before the time that they're a senior. Yeah. Definitely. And, you know, your article as well mentioned about uh, Canada has ratified the UN Convention on the Rights Mm -hmm. of Persons with Disabilities, and yet Canada has no statute to directly enforce this in the country at this present time, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, would this just not be that we're just pandering to the world community to appear that we're doing something, but actually really nothing? What can uh, we do as a society to ensure that this really does get enforced? Right. So international human rights law is always a tricky thing in terms of what does it mean? Is it aspirational or is this actually something that has teeth and can be implemented throughout? Um, One of the lawyers I spoke to for this piece, Claire McNeil from Nova Scotia, who's really involved in these issues uh, in Nova Scotia, she would talk about how at the very least the framework is useful. uh, Sorry, the, um, the convention is useful as a framework. It's something that you can present and say, well, this is what we've said that we are going to do. And in that there is an article, I believe it's article 19, that does talk about having the ability to live in the community in a place of one's own choosing on par with everybody else. Um, So it's it's always a tricky thing in terms of a UN convention. You see that even on um, the Convention on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Mm-hmm. But at least in that case, you know, you have motions in the House of Commons. You have provinces like British Columbia who are making a push to see how can we incorporate that into our provincial laws. Yeah. I could have missed something, but I have yet to see a motion in the House of Commons about the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is sad given that if you speak to some individuals who are instrumental in Canada signing it, they would have said that at the time when that convention was being formulated, at the time Canada was almost seen as a leader in this field. Um, Now, a decade or so out, that is no longer the case for a variety of reasons. Definitely. And the other uh, major topic uh, especially during this pandemic, was of course made, and uh, and it definitely on the federal level with Bill C seven was very controversial, and had great uh, negative impacts with people with disabilities. Would you uh, be able to highlight why this violates some of the human rights and kind of goes against the UN Convention for the Rights of Persons with Disabilities? Sure. Um... The United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and and the Rights of uh, Seniors, they highlighted that um, this past February. They had highlighted it years 
earlier. So when Canada first legalized what we now call medical assistance in dying, it's also—it's historically been called euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, but made is our current phrase. When that was originally um, legalized, I believe in 2016, after the Carter decision, um, special rapporteurs wrote to the United Nations, like this has been flagged multiple times since it was passed and um, primarily because of a concern of how this would impact people with disabilities. So the criminal code, which is the piece of legislation that enables this, does specify that an individual has to have a previously existing medical or health condition to be eligible for MAID. And in the original legislation, there was a safe, uh, what was considered a safeguard that said that you had to be at a point where, quote, natural death was, quote, unquote, reasonably foreseeable. So, for example, it wasn't enough that you were diagnosed with cancer. You actually have to be, your natural death is imminent. Um, And what happened this past March is the government passed a piece of legislation, uh, Bill C-7, an act to amend the criminal code of medical assistance in dying that removed that safeguard. And what it does is it creates two different pathways to receiving a medically assisted death, one for individuals whose death is reasonably foreseeable, and one for those who are not dying. Um, And there's a, so there's a different waiting period. And in the, in the, um, like the track, they call it, mm-hmm. for those whose death is not reasonably foreseeable, there's a note that if an individual whose death is not reasonably foreseeable is requesting made, that they need to be informed about all the supports that are available to help address this issue. Why are you laughing, Wendy? Um, so obviously the question that that, brought up in a lot of people's minds including yeah. myself was what supports what are like you're going to tell them that nothing is available for them we're going to tell them a whole bunch of wait lists are available for them we're going to tell them that a whole bunch of bureaucracy like what what supports are we talking about and then um where does this person live and supports are never adequate but they do vary a lot uh from province to province or territory to territory so um that sparked a whole bunch of other conversations. Um, I, I I personally never supported C7. I actually personally don't support MAID. Um, and I, um, I was really sad by what happened in March. I wasn't surprised because I would have said that the moment we as a country decided that we're going to allow this, we'd already opened the door. This was the inevitable yeah. next step. Um, and at the time, people would have said, oh, you're crazy. That's the risk slope argument. That's not real. Um, it happened. It happened on March 17th. And um, it was interesting because this bill was delayed several times. It was originally introduced before the pandemic. And uh, then it got delayed because we had a pandemic. I, at the time, I was like, the only good thing to come out of COVID is we delayed this all. Um, then they prorogued Parliament, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau prorogued Parliament uh, last summer and summer 2020. Yeah. That killed the bill, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, and then right after Parliament resumed, they reintroduced it. And that to a lot of Canadians with disabilities, for them, that um, 
they read that as a very clear signal that the federal government, despite other things that it had said, really had no intention to help them. Uh, so in the speech from the throne in September 2020, the federal government also announced that they were going to create uh, what has now been known as the Disability Action Inclusion Plan that has several different pillars, but one of them is a national disability benefit similar to old age security or guaranteed income and meant to you know, help people with disabilities live full and meaningful lives. And months after that promise was um, kind of hinted at, the government passed a law, well, changed the law to make it easier for Canadians who are already living with a disability to um, um, receive a medical, medically assistant death and the state would uh, sponsor that and, and allow that to happen without any repercussions on uh, those practitioners who, who did it. Um, and also in passing Bill C-7, the government did say they're planning to extend eligibility for made to individuals whose only health condition is a mental health condition. Um, so there's no physical ailment, there's just a mental health condition. Um, yeah, but the, the a lot of the language I've heard in the past few um, well, you're in a bit um, reporting on this, is uh, people will say, you know, in Canada, if somebody's contemplating suicide, we give them support and we tell them that, you know, like their life matters, except if you have a disability. If you have a disability and you have a bad day, don't worry, everyone. We've got a way to deal with that and yeah. It's to kill you. So um, the language that the United Nations Special Rapporteur used and the language that a lot of disability advocates would use is that what Bill C-7 did is it sent, it essentially said that it is better to be dead than to be disabled. And that conversation comes out a lot when you're discussing long-term care. Um, Jean Touchon, who was one of the plaintiffs in the Gladys Touchon decision, that is the Quebec Superior Court ruling that led to the uh, creation of Bill C-7. He was living in a long-term care facility, so he didn't want to stay there anymore. Yeah. And that was what he wanted. So there's an individual that uh, we profile in the piece, Jonathan Marchand, who lives in Quebec. And he, he spoke to the Senate, he spoke before the Senate about Bill C-7 raising his objections. And he, he's very honest in his testimony and elsewhere when he speaks about this, that he at one time um, would have considered ending his life. Um, but then he learned about supports to live out in the community. And he was reminded that yes, his life does have value and it's worth fighting for. And he spent the last few years really advocating for young adults, for um, anyone with disabilities to be living out in the community with their support. But it is, it was, it was the topic that I knew, even if I didn't ask a question about it, it was going to come up in people's answers. It's, it's in the background of any discussion right now in this country about disability supports. Definitely, because the supports are, how would I say it nicely, are few and far between and as you mentioned before nice. um there are a lot of wait lists and many wait lists and you're waiting for decades because mm -hmm. I can definitely attest to that um you know with my family member they've been on wait list for 
20 plus years waiting for support. So um, not all families, you know, have the vigor to still continue and to be able to support their person mm-hmm. with disabilities or, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's very, very hard. And what you, you, you know, all the points that you've mentioned are exactly what some people will think about because their life doesn't have value maybe I shouldn't be here, you know, and I've definitely talked with a number of younger folks in uh, long-term care and they just don't see the, the need almost, so to speak, to kind of, you know, live another day. But, you know, if there's not um, people looking out for them, people that are, um, that care for, for them to, to be alive, um, you know, this is, as you said, it's, it's disappointing that this was, uh, that this particular piece of legislation was passed. And, I know that you mentioned uh, before there of the of some of the individuals that you've um, featured in this article, mm-hmm. but uh, if you can kind of mention as to where where they are now, if you know, um, and are they still in long term care? Sure. So Victoria Levac, who um, again we begin and we end uh, we end the piece with her, she is uh, thirty one now. Her birthday is at the beginning of December. Um, She's been living at a care facility in Halifax for a little over a decade. She was approved this summer to be part of a pilot project in Nova Scotia that would have four adults with disabilities um, living in the community with 24-7 attendant care funded by the province. Uh, So two individuals per condo with staff coming in at um, filling the shifts. Um, Last I heard from the government of Nova Nova Scotia, the they're doing renovations to make sure everything is wheelchair accessible. So we're waiting for that, um, mm-hmm. hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, Jonathan Marchand has uh, moved out into an apartment in Quebec City, I believe, uh, in the summer. And that was a, he fought individually for that. He wow. um, campaigned, he camped out actually in front of the national legislature in, in Quebec in the summer of 2020, he stayed there in a cage for five days to uh, give a visual representation of what his life is like because of a lack of uh, government support. So the government made a deal with him individually. Uh, There's a lot of red tape that he had to go through to get the supports that he needs. Um, But he's finally been able to move out on his own and is strongly advocating for other people to have that opportunity um that's a big theme when you speak to people who have gotten out or in the process of getting out that this for them this is not over once they leave that long-term care facility and change their address it's very much doing this for everyone else so those would be two main ones um then we also profiled an individual joe arnold who lives in toronto and profiled him because he uh like victoria levesque has cerebral palsy he -hmm. has some added communication uh challenges that victoria doesn't but he has never lived in a long-term care facility because of a, a network of paid and unpaid supports that he's part of. Um, his, his mother was part of starting a not-for-profit that supports um, adults with developmental dis- and different types of dif- disabilities. Um, so we, we profiled his story largely just to show that long-term care actually does not have to be the answer. And there are people who are making solutions and making this work. And the organization that Joseph is part of, Neighbors, N-A-B-O-R-S, is not a direct funding or individualized funding model, um, but they still, they, they make it work. And mm-hmm. there's a couple other organizations like 
uh, throughout the country. Uh, so as far as I know, he's still um, still having his regular life. Uh, his, his mother has reached out to us several times since this article was published. And she says that he really loved being photographed for the article, oh. which I expected. He, he very much loves mm-hmm. these things. Um, so yeah, his, his life is still continuing. Um, and it's interesting talking to him about his experiences living on his own because part of his life means, you know, finding new people to support him and training new staff and hiring new staff and, and going through that. And he really likes his staff, you know, sometimes there's turnover, things like that. And he'll talk about, you know, like sometimes he wonders if it would be easier to move to a long-term care facility. And I think that um, I know even for myself as somebody with just, uh, just a physical disability, mm-hmm. I'm legally blind. There, there is always this part of you that's like, Oh, maybe I am just a burden. Like maybe it would be better for my family or friends if this part of my life didn't exist. Um, so there is this thing that you kind of have to fight against um, often of uh, realizing that, you know, like you're not a burden and mm-hmm. um, like part of being human is needing other human beings. Yes. Part of what it means to be a human. So there is, even when it comes back to those conversations about made for some people, they reach a point where they feel like, you know, maybe everybody would be better off if I wasn't here. Um, And again, if anyone else said this in this country, we would hopefully be calling you a counselor and we would be making sure that you are not alone, making sure that you don't hurt yourself. Um, So then the question arose with C7, why is it that we provide that to everybody else except people who already have a condition like a disability? Exactly, exactly. Because they do have value. Everybody has value. And we need to ensure that everyone knows that. Um, and as we close, um, do you have anything that's uh, right now as a, as a call to action to ensure mm-hmm. that the rights and protections are in place for individuals with intellectual and de- developmental and physical disabilities? Sure. This is one that I heard from several of the people that I spoke to. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to pass along their words. Mm-hmm. One of theirs would just be go and visit people. Uh, go and volunteer go if you have a relative who's living in a long-term care facility go and visit them and not just at Christmas time Um, so involve yourself in where they're living um, and see it firsthand Um, that that's a big one Um, build relationships with people as people this is a big thing that comes up in disability literature where you are interacting with the disabled person or the person with a disability on an equal footing Um, seeing them as somebody who can teach you and I can vouch for this all the people I spoke to for this article who are living in long-term care or have lived in long-term care have a lot to teach any of us about just making productive use of your time during a pandemic you know I've been like oh Mm -hmm. like what should I watch on Netflix today and they're like okay here's how I'm going to lobby the government to change a system so I think they probably have a lot to teach us um so on a base level just make relationships with people go and be with people you um you are a human being, you are not God, you are not personally able to solve all of people's problems, but you can be there with them and share that. That's a big thing. And then um, people, a lot of people also suggest if this is an issue that is a concern to you, um, write your MPP, write your MLA. Um, in Ontario, we're heading into election in uh, 2022. When people are coming, when candidates are coming around um, to your door, however, we're gonna do that campaign ask about this because they're not going to bring it up 
they're never going to like spoiler they're never going to bring up disability issues until it is brought to them and it needs to be brought to them by not just the individual with the disability um so that if you want to get political about it um that would be a big thing and i this is just me speaking me as a person i don't think it would hurt to tell the federal government that actually not every canadian supported c7 not every canadian supports made and they need to know that that's part of their constituents and what are you going to do about that there is a petition going around right now um for the government to fast track the creation of the national disability benefit that piece of legislation was introduced uh, literally at the last hour of the last uh, parliament. Um, it is framework legislation. It is incredibly broad. It needs to be developed. It needs to be given more specifics, but um, making sure that that conversation is put forward to the top of the government's agenda. Um, if you want to get involved on a on a federal level, that would be that would be one of them. But yeah, I would say you know if you're part if you're part of a faith community, um, go visit and volunteer at a long term care facility. Go visit and volunteer at, at a group home. If you're part of any community association, uh, consider this um, and find ways that you can volunteer or be involved with individuals who live there or in their families um, beyond beyond the holiday season. Definitely. I definitely would agree there. And I'll definitely put that in the show notes um, so people can be able to, um, you know, click on the link and uh, to be able to show their support. So thank you so much, Megan. I really do appreciate you coming on, talking about your article that you've written and to further to to discuss uh, this particular issue. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This this has been a a lot of fun, even though the topic isn't. Yeah, uh, the conversation's been good.